Hello and welcome to the Penn Health X podcast. My name is Ryan O'Keefe and I'm a fifth year MD MBA candidate at the Perlman School of Medicine and the Wharton School. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Dr. Arpan Parikh. Dr. Parikh was a colleague of mine at Wharton last year. He since graduated and moved on to a role with Caremore Health. Dr. Parikh got his MD at Ohio State and completed his residency in psychiatry at Mount Sinai in New York City. In the episode, we discuss what drew him to medicine and psychiatry, memories he has as a student, clinical roles that he's taken on, why he chose to get an MBA, and how he plans to use his skills at Caremore Health. It was an absolute pleasure for me to speak with Dr. Parikh and learn from him, and I hope you enjoy. All right, well, I'm joined on the other line by Arpan Parikh. He is a MD. He's a practicing psychiatrist and is now currently an MBA student with me at Wharton. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Of course, Ryan. Happy to. So I'm curious, I think we can just get started um, way back what initially drew you to the medical field. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up in a family where my dad was a physician. He actually is a psychiatrist as well. So, you know, as a young kid, like always having fond memories of the work he did, sort of the fulfillment he got from his career, Um, you know, being in the Indian community, a lot of my friends' parents were also in the medical field. So growing up, that's always um, sort of a career option that was high on my mind. And then in high school, sort of always enjoying my science classes and knowing, sorry, enjoying anatomy classes. Um, really got me turned on to the field of medicine as a potential career. So uh, coming out of high school, I was actually lucky enough to apply to and get into a combined BSMD program at Ohio State University, which is where I ended up going. Um, That sort of gave me a set track to finish my undergrad years at OSU and then sort of seamlessly go right into med school there as well. Yeah. Tell us a bit about more about the... uh... The combined program, I know that's kind of a little bit more akin to what is like in, in foreign countries where you go straight through and you kind of have to know at such a, a young age that it's what you actually wanted to do. Can you kind of tell us a bit about the program? Yeah, it was interesting. I think it's a bit of a dying breed these days. I think, you know, I say it's program actually doesn't even formally exist anymore, but it was, I think, net positive for me back then. So Um, Essentially, it was a seven-year program that involved me spending three years as an undergrad at OSU, but actually not having to take any extra credits. So it wasn't necessarily taking four years worth of classes in three years. It's more just take three years worth of classes, and then we'll count your first year of med school towards your undergrad degree and your MD. Um, So that was nice. We also were exempted from the MCAT, which was very nice. Um, So that took a lot of the pressure off of us in terms of just really being able to explore our various interests during undergrad. Um, It also gave people the opportunity to also explore healthcare and medicine. Like like you said, getting into and going to one of those programs requires at least some inkling that you want to lock yourself into medicine as a career coming out of high school, which not everyone is ready for, but having the flexibility of not having to worry about the MCAT, or going through the med school application cycle, let people actually test out that hypothesis. And there were definitely people who took a bunch of different types of classes in undergrad and were able to, you know, do some really cool extracurriculars and actually decided, hey, like after 
looking around, I don't think medicine is the right career for me. So it actually gave people the flexibility to, um, you know, sort of pivot their careers, you know, step out of the combined program and go on to do really cool and interesting other things. Um, so I think it actually worked out well, both for people like me who ended up confirming their interest in medicine and also for the folks who, you know, decided they didn't necessarily want to go through with it. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it also makes sense a little bit why they're starting to uh, thin and how many programs like, uh, like that are offered. Did you still have to take all of the same like pre-med requirements, like as though you were applying to medical school? Because I know that that's a common annoyance and something that, you know, looking back at all the years of schooling, um, you know, was it totally necessary to take, you know, a, however many chemistry classes, however many physics yeah. classes, like, did you still have to do all that? Yeah, for sure. We had to take most of them. So I think we had to take all of the standard like bio and chem and physics. And then this is, you know, going back a while, but you know, I think we had to take some biochem and molecular genetics. Um, but they did exempt us from some of like the upper, upper level electives um, that were mm -hmm. sort of part of the quote unquote pre-med requirements. And that's where the med school um, credit came in. And they kind of gave us credit because, you know, you repeat a lot of that stuff um during your first year of medical school anyways so um they kind of came up with that creative solution so that we didn't have to cram in four years into three or two like some other of those accelerated programs um kind of make you do got it and ha having the opportunity to take a look at your your bio and your resume um i saw that you worked for the office of ted strickland and you're specifically working um, on the response to the H1N1 flu pandemic however many years ago. And so that's, that seems particularly relevant right now. So can you tell us a bit about when that was and kind of what you did? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, you know, kind of tying into the combined program and having that flexibility. So during the spring semester of my junior year, which was my last year of college, um, I had actually finished all of my class requirements. And because I wasn't worried about studying for the MCAT or, you know, going through applications and interviews, I was actually able to take the semester off and do a full-time uh, semester long internship with the governor's office. Um, so, you know, the office had a few different programs that were running uh, during that time. The one that kind of ended up being a natural fit for me was working with sort of his uh, right-hand person who was dealing with the H1N1 flu pandemic that had started to spread across Asia. And, uh, many US states were also starting to get sort of concerned about it around that time. It was a super interesting project, kind of my first taste of the non-clinical side of medicine and, and public health, I suppose, and really got me interested to think about all the things that sort of have to happen outside of the doctor's office in order to take care of a patient. So all of the logistics and the operational challenges that you know, happen before a patient goes to see their doctor and that happens after a patient leaves the office in order to get them the medication they need and set up all of the systems that sort of the healthcare system requires. It was a really interesting project. And like you said, um, I think it's super relevant. I think Ohio actually has had one of the more sort of robust and proactive responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. And you know, thinking back to those days, it's pretty clear that uh, the governor's office has always been super prepared uh, and thinking about this sort of response. So it's nice to see that you know, they're doing such a good job here. Yeah, no, undoubtedly. And I think it is interesting. I'm, I'm trying to like put myself back in the shoes where I was uh, in my life when H1N1 was happening. And I'm pretty sure I was uh, 
I remember going and being on the um, visiting different colleges trail. So I must have been junior. And I think I was visiting uh, the University of Delaware. And for some reason, I think it was either the University of Delaware or Delaware, um, the state itself was like one of the first places that reported having positive H1N1 cases. And I remember like this, yeah, like fear coming over me because we were going to be going and visiting the school and like, should we cancel? Like, what are we going to do? And I remember going there and like looking around and everybody seemed like, you know, it was totally normal and it was just like a normal day. And I I just remember like, it was almost like that movie contagion where like, you just like feel like there's just like stuff all around you. And so I remember, yeah, that was like particularly salient memory that I have of like the inner or the, um, yeah, visiting college trail was that, that everything was going on there. And obviously, you know, there's, there's just so much, um, so much relevance to, to the current, um, response. So yeah, I think, do you, do you remember, um, any specific things that you had learned? I know you, you mentioned a few, but anything specific that you think would be particularly relevant now? I think the most interesting part of the project I was involved in was actually thinking about sort of supply chain logistics. So the aspect of the project I worked most intimately with was thinking about how the state was going to distribute vaccines if, if and when they became available for H1N1 specifically. Um, and I just remember having to think about all of these different pieces that I could not have even imagined were involved. So I can give you an example. Um, we had to identify kind of six or seven regions that we were going to split the state into. Um, each region, we had to identify a key sort of central warehousing location where all the vaccine for that region could be securely stored. We had to think about how to involve the Ohio State Highway Patrol leadership uh, because they were going to have to sort of securely accompany the convoy of trucks um, from the central location to each of the warehouses and then from each of the warehouses to each of like the sort of local community distribution centers um, and then thinking about how you actually um, provide the human capital to, you know, provide the vaccinations to people. Um, I think today about these sort of drive-through testing centers and then people talking about, you know, how are we going to distribute a potential vaccine for COVID? Mm-hmm. And I just think about, wow, it's actually a super complicated supply chain. Even when you talk about once the vaccine has landed in the state, there are still so many steps um, that have to be thought through before the vaccine can actually, you know, get to each individual patient. No, that is super interesting. And I think uh, it, it is, I found it interesting that you said that Ohio had a pretty robust response because I was, I was in Ohio recently um, and they have like the hour long um, per day kind of recap on the updates on what's going on yep. in, in the state where they have um, DeWine and then they also yep. have uh, Amy Acton getting up and like yeah. sharing all of the, the public health statistics. And it was, yeah, I just thought it was very well done and very calming and just kind of like very, you know, here, matter of fact, here's what you need to do and kind of here's what we're going to go doing going forward. And I thought it was just really, really well done. Yeah, it's been impressive. I think uh, Governor DeWine has kind of gone above the political fray and made it a very apolitical situation and decided that sort of clear, consistent communication is the way to do it. Uh, obviously, he's not sort of getting the press that uh, Cuomo is getting, but personally, I think that his response is, you know, right up there with how um, Governor Cuomo has also handled the situation in New York. Yeah, agreed. 
So, okay. So you, you were in this, this combined program, got some kind of outside the box opportunities in the public health and policy realm, but you ended up deciding on psychiatry. So can you tell us a bit about kind of how you ended up making that decision? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, coming into med school, my dad was a psychiatrist, so knew more about that specialty than I did any other, but, you know, told myself I was going to keep an open mind and see what I truly enjoyed. So, you know, through the first couple of years, didn't have any specific ideas of where, which way I was leaning. Um, as third year came around, pediatrics was one of my first rotations. I think it was my second rotation of third year, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I remember having this wonderful team of attendings and residents who I was working with at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, and just really enjoying taking care of my patients. And I left that rotation um, almost convinced that I was going to pursue pediatrics as, as my career. Um, then my next uh, rotation ended up being psychiatry, and I got to uh, rotate through Twin Valley, which is actually one of Ohio's forensic psychiatric hospitals. And that ended up sealing the deal. Um, despite how much I enjoyed my pediatrics rotation, I found, you know, the idea of actually getting to spend 60 or 90 minutes with each of my patients on the psychiatry rotation, you know, talking to them at length, talking about their lives, their motivations, actually getting to know them on this really deep and intimate level um, and forming that really long lasting relationship was very uh, fulfilling and compelling to me. And I would say it's probably that aspect of getting to know my patients really well and have those long-term relationships is what um, ended up driving me to choose to pursue psychiatry in the end. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I would agree that that was one thing that really uh, I enjoyed a lot about rotating in psychiatry was, you know, they're not feeling nearly as much um, rush when it comes to having those conversations and recognizing that it often, you know, the, the relationship is often therapeutic in itself. And so the yeah. more time you spend with somebody really, that's kind of in a way giving, giving treatment. And so, exactly. yeah, I found that that was really interesting. And I think uh, I wanted to ask, so there's a few things I wanted to get into in, the, in terms of psychiatry, but I wanted to ask before we did, if there are particular areas uh, in the field that you're most passionate about or interested in. Yeah, I would say over the course of my uh, residency training and then my career afterwards, there's probably two areas that I've sort of honed in on as sort of my areas of clinical interest. Um, so one is certainly substance use disorders. I think it's a fascinating subspecialty within psychiatry. Um, I also think it's a terribly um, stigmatized area within psychiatry. Um, so I think there's just this nexus of a huge need and also a really interesting patient population that I find fascinating um, in addictions and in substance use disorders. And then the second area I would say is uh, young professional and student health and uh, trainee and clinician wellness. So, you know, I had some interesting opportunities during my residency to get involved in those areas. And I found, um, you know, just taking care of young professionals and young adults to be really interesting. And then I've also found it really interesting that, to think about sort of clinician and trainee wellness and resilience, you know, in the context of, of burnout um, that has become sort of this invoke topic um, you know, in the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, you're certainly right. It's been in the zeitgeist for a while now, and I think it's really coming to a fore with what's been going on um, with the coronavirus pandemic um, and yeah. people, yeah, being, you know, psychiatry taking um, 
taking a really a big, uh, I think it, it's kind of under the surface, but start everyone's starting to recognize now the, the role that psychiatry and psychiatric illness is starting to play, um, on this pandemic in general. But I think, um, yeah, I do, I do want to get to that, but I think one thing, so you mentioned, um, being interested in kind of those two different fields within psychiatry. And one thing that I've always found really interesting about the field itself is that it, it feels like there are different phenotypes within psychiatry. And I think one thing I was very surprised, I think we go in as students is assuming a lot of, it is exactly like you said, like it's, it's a lot of mental illness and it is um, like addiction medicine and that those are unfortunately often linked to patients with low resource or who live in low resource settings and those who um, oftentimes come from minority backgrounds. And so it's just kind of like a, a whole lot of things that all come together that make these patients particularly difficult to treat well. Mm-hmm. And um, oftentimes uh, it's not like a particularly quote unquote lucrative space. Um, a lot of the best work I've seen in my opinion um, in the psychiatry field comes from the VA um, where there's yeah. a lot of mental illness um, unfortunately in the veteran population. Um, and yet that's like kind of one phenotype that I think is sometimes stereotypical, but then there's the other side of it, which is maybe like the, the, the private pay kind of only, you know, taking more wealthy, uh, patients Mm -hmm. and, you know, or cash only type business. Um, and that's maybe more, uh, maybe like higher socioeconomic status type of mental, uh, illness that comes into the play. Um, so I'm just curious, like it, it, it seems to me like it's, it's definitely not unlike other specialties and that there's always going to be different kind of things you can go into, but mm-hmm. it seems particularly striking the divide within the field of psychiatry. Yeah. I would say that I, I tend to agree with that kind of overall picture. You know, there's the psychiatry that happens in the hospitals, in community mental health clinics, um, in the VA that's really taking care of, you know, the sickest, most complicated patients who tend to be under-resourced and, you know, don't have equitable access to care. And that's probably what drives some of, you know, the complexity and severity of, of the illness that, you know, it's being treated in those centers to begin with. Um, and then you do have, especially in big cities like New York, like Boston, like San Francisco and Los Angeles, you have this almost parallel universe of psychiatry that happens in the private office, right? And like you mentioned, I can speak, you know, to Manhattan because that's where I trained and spent um, my time as an attending afterwards you have this universe where you have private practices and private offices where psychiatrists are seeing patients. Um, they only take cash or credit card, you know, it's purely fee for service, um, out of network for all insurances. So, you know, a patient has to pay, you know, multiple hundreds of dollars up to, you know, getting close to four figures for a 45 or 60 minute session. And, you know, just by virtue of that, arrangement, that patient population is dramatically different. Um, I think it's kind of sad sometimes that the folks who are taking care of that really complex sick patient, I think that's the kind of work I find most fulfilling, are not being compensated, you know, fairly necessarily if you compare it to the group of folks that is taking care of the really um, well-to-do kind of better resource patients in New York. Um, but I suppose that's just classic supply and demand and, uh, now coming to business school, uh, you know, it, it makes sense that, um, you know, there's folks who are willing to pay for that service and the doctors who are willing to provide it are going to get compensated differently than the folks who want to maybe do, um, the work that I find more meaningful 
uh, you know, working in a hospital community mental health center, that's just not going to have the resources to compensate its um, doctors, its psychiatrists in the same way. Yeah, I know you're, you're absolutely right. And I think it is interesting though. I mean, you know, it's not that different than a lot of different specialties where I think there's always kind of, there's a few different routes you can go down. Um, one of which tends to be taking care of more well-off patients that maybe, you know, you'd be more quote unquote lucrative. But I, I think, um, it, it's interesting because I, I have heard from a number of people who are either residents or people considering going into psychiatry. There's definitely a lot of people like you who said, you know, I have this particular interest. I really value the the one on one patient time, having a lot of time with patients and the therapeutic relationship. And then I've also just heard people say, like, you know, point blank, and you know, and I try not to judge as much as possible. But they're just like, yeah, I just want a cush life, to be honest. Like, <laughs> I want I want to be able to like kind of see patients whenever the heck I want to see them and get paid yeah. like you know with cash and. You know, I think it's it's interesting because I think in our MBA worlds and, you know, the law worlds, you know, it's it's certainly not uncommon, nor is it really judged for somebody to do something for, you know, with the main emphasis being to make money. But I think it's it's more taboo and more hush-hush, I think, in, in medical circles for that to be one of the primary driving things. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But I, I don't think, what, you know, either approach is necessarily right or wrong. And I mean, I think to that perspective, the amount of time and investment that we put in, um, you know, when you think about medical school plus residency, it's like, it's significant. And um, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, illogical um, or irrational for folks to feel, you know, that they want to be adequately sort of rewarded for the time and effort that they put in um, to get there. Yeah, I agree. I think it is just, it is interesting. Yeah. The split there. Um, Mm -hmm. because I remember, I think I remember, um, I don't remember who the quote came from, but there was somebody who was in the leadership of psychiatry at Penn. And they were saying that being the chief of that department or the chair of a psychiatry department is one of like the toughest jobs because you pretty much get no real institutional support really anywhere that you are just because it is not really much of a moneymaker. And it's not one of those things that's going to get like all like the major new technologies and a lot of big investment. Cause at the end of the day, a lot of what you do is, you know, prescribe medications and talk to people. And so you're not like, you know, getting like tons of tons of attention necessarily. Um, So it's interesting that, you know, that even in, you know, really some of the best places in the world, it's still kind of one of the toughest uh, specialties to, to survive as a leader. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a very challenging place to be. I will say though, that, you know, as folks start to think about a more holistic model of medicine, particularly as you think about this like slow, but persistent shift that's happening towards like a value-based system. um, Many people are starting to realize that it's impossible to efficiently treat any patients sort of quote unquote medical illnesses diabetes, heart failure, COPD, unless their underlying, you know, psychiatric comorbidities are also adequately managed. So I will say that in systems where there is this more sort of, you know, holistic value-based mentality, um, psychiatry has been able to get a seat at the table and not just get a seat at the table, but actually be um, seen as a critical um, key member, which is nice to see um, finally starting to happen. Yeah. And I think with that, we can transition maybe into COVID and kind of the impact it's having. I think one of the obvious things people are talking a lot about is how this is going to change telemedicine and maybe how we are thinking about reimbursing things like that and potentially accelerating value-based care models and where the risk is sitting. 
but I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are. There's been a lot of think pieces written about, you know, how now potentially mental illness um, is going to be on the rise again with loneliness and with people, you know, mm-hmm. having to social distance as well as, you know, the, the fear, a lot of people, um, coming or, you know, the insomnia is returning or anxiety is returning. And so prescriptions for both of those are supposedly on the rise. So I'm curious kind of first what you're, you're taking, what you, you're, if you've been keeping your finger on the pulse of what's been going on in the psychiatry community, um, in response to the pandemic and kind of how you see, if at all, the, the field changing, um, because of it. Yeah. I mean, I think on the front of sort of the consequences of the sequela of this, I mean, when you talk about the indirect effects of, like you mentioned, sort of social distancing, um, I certainly see folks being more lonely. More than that, though, I just see sort of the breaking of routine as being so disruptive to everyone. Um, I think folks are finding it really difficult to transition, you know, from having a set routine, you know, Mm -hmm. going to work Monday through Friday, having their set routines on the weekends to now spending all their time in one physical location, their home, their apartment, um, if they're lucky enough to have a home or apartment to be in. Um, and then not having any like significant milestones to you know mark the passage of time during the day um, or the night, not having you know the capability to separate space between work and not work. Um, right. I think all of those are really significant contributors to you know being detrimental um, to folks, you know, mental wellness. On top of that, I think it's well established at this point that physical wellness is really tied into mental well-being. And again, it's hard for people to get outside. It's hard for folks to be physically active. Um, it's hard for folks to get adequate, you know, sun exposure. Um, and all of those will also, you know, indirectly drive, um, you know, a lower sense of mental well-being. And then lay on top of that, maybe some of the direct effects. So uh, there, I've seen some initial papers, not anything convincing enough for me to actually quote it, um, saying that there may very well be some sort of direct, um, you know, neurobiological consequences of um, COVID-19 for folks who, you know, were infected and recovered that may actually drive um, depression and anxiety in in patients. So I think there will be sort of this double whammy of direct effects for folks who were infected and then all the indirect effects that everyone um, has sort of suffered as a consequence. Um, and I think that's something that we'll see over the course of the next three, six, nine months. And then particularly in the patient population of clinicians, I think that's a whole separate issue. Um, but we're seeing, you know, a pretty dramatic increase in terms of, uh, anxiety, even, uh, features of post-traumatic stress disorder for folks who have been on the front lines, um, kind of committing themselves to taking care of patients, but seeing, um, some really horrific things and having to make really tough decisions. Um, and I think we also need to think about that aspect of it and how we're going to support sort of the heroes, you know, not only nurses and doctors, but EMTs, um, you know, everyone who's been involved in taking care of patients. I think, um, we need to think really deeply about how we make sure that uh, they're supported throughout this as well as they can. Yeah, no doubt. Um, thanks for taking us through a few of those, like what you're seeing on the ground now and how do you think the like what's been going on is going to, um, if at all, change the field? So I think there has definitely been an acceleration of what was probably an already underlying slow shift towards telemedicine um, by necessity in most cases, um, you know, because folks either were prohibited from, you know, having their offices open and seeing patients 
or, um, you know, because patients didn't want to come into the office or clinicians didn't want to go into their office into the hospital to see folks. Um, and I see psychiatry as it's always been as sort of the best use case for telemedicine, just because we really don't need to, you know, lay hands on the vast majority of patients in order to do a comprehensive assessment. Um, I think what COVID did was force folks to actually try it and give it a go and realize that it actually works pretty well. Um, I'm already hearing from colleagues who are saying that even once things go back to quote unquote normal, uh, they still see telemedicine as being a, a not insignificant part of their practice mm-hmm. um, and continuing to use that um, either as a tool to see their own patients and you know work remotely part of part time um, or providing their services in a different way, you know, maybe partnering with another uh, telemedicine company to kind of supplement or augment um, whatever their existing in-person practices. Um, so I see that as something that's here to stay. And I see that not just in psychiatry, but in every specialty. Uh, I just think psychiatry is probably the place where it will have the most profound effect. Yeah, that's going to be, it's certainly going to be interesting to see. And I think, yeah, um, clearly, like you mentioned, just by nature of not having to oftentimes actually deliver, you know, a, a therapy or do some sort of a procedure that a lot of it can be done um, virtually. It'll, it'll certainly yeah. be interesting to see where things go. Um, are you aware of um, the, like the digital therapeutics? Um, this is not something we necessarily prepped for. But I'm curious, it's something that I've found interesting is like kind of mm-hmm. what the future of digital therapies is going to look like. And certainly I think there's a few FDA approved um, therapies from like PEAR. Do you know yeah. anything about that or are you able to speak about that and kind of how that's going to look in the future? Yeah, um, I'm relatively familiar with PEAR and like Reset and Reset O. Um, I know they have some other products in the pipeline, you know, for other um, psychiatric diagnoses as well. Personally, uh, I'd probably say I am on the fence. Um, <laughs> I'm still not fully convinced that um, that model will necessarily work, um, but I think it still remains to be seen. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll keep it at the jury is out. Um, I think it's really promising, and I think we definitely need more tools in our toolbox when it comes to engaging patients, uh, particularly when they're not sitting in front of us. Uh, I'm just not totally convinced about um, you know, what the value proposition is going to be of uh, the digital therapeutics and, you know, what the cost sort of benefit ratio is going to look like there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly um, yet to be seen kind of how it plays out. But is the idea behind it that you're basically like when it says like you're doing CBT, let's say over like a digital therapeutic, is that like, is it like pre-recorded type of exercises, kind of like a talk or a headspace where it's kind of like a, they take you through exercises or is it more of like a telemedicine component where an actual provider is like coming in, you know, intermittently to, to lead sessions? Like are, are you aware of kind of what those products actually look like? Yeah. My understanding is most of those digital therapeutics are more of like the latter, um, sorry, of the former of what you described. So they're more sort of like self-service, self-access modules that, um, patients can engage with, you know, on an as needed basis. And it's sort of preloaded or pre-recorded content um, that's interactive. So whether it's like a short video, whether it's an activity like um, prompting a patient to do journaling, uh, whether it's walking them through sort of a, let's say a mindfulness um, exercise or a square breathing activity. Um, it's, you know, going through 
sort of evidence-based treatments and protocols um, in a way that's already sort of pre-accessed. To my understanding, the main component of most of those digital therapeutics is not um, sort of like an on-demand or live access to a, to a clinician to intervene. Yeah, that's that was my understanding as well. And I think it is really interesting because I think at least from the trials, it seems like there's been some benefit and that it definitely is helpful. It'll just, it's just curious because it's just so unlike any previous type of you know, therapy where it's like a drug yeah. where we have clear pathways for approval and there's patents. It's, it's like, you know, if it's a series of videos and like exercises, like what's to then, you know, why mm-hmm. is that necessary that that's like actually FDA approved? And is this yeah. something that really we should be paying for? Can this be something that someone just like uploads for free on YouTube and, you know, yeah. somebody yeah. is able to then use it? So yeah, I think, I think it's super, super interesting and it'll be cool to see what ends up coming from it. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm with you and that on the fence is probably the, the right place to stand for now. Yeah. I guess, yeah, cautiously optimistic is, is yeah, what I'd say. Agreed. Cool. So I think, yeah, to transition now, so we've we spent a bit of the time on the more medical side of your background. So maybe transitioning to the management side and kind of the 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 business side. So you after finishing up residency, uh, you you served as a medical director for the Addiction Institute at Mount Sinai St. Luke's. And so can you yep. tell us about how you got that role and kind of what that experience was like? Yeah, getting that role was probably one of the, you know, more fortuitous things that sort of happened over the course of my career. Um, During residency, I had developed a pretty good relationship with my um, department chair. And as things got closer to graduation, you know, I was chatting with him about various options. I had actually spent a lot of my fourth year residency moonlighting on our inpatient detox and rehab unit. Mm -hmm. So I had built a pretty good relationship with um, a lot of the attendings and the staff um, in the addictions division. Um, And obviously also got a lot of good clinical experience taking care of the patient population. So, um, you know, over the course of a couple conversations, the department chair said, Hey, we have this opening um, for a position that might be interesting to you. It's a position running um, the outpatient addiction clinic at St. Luke's hospital, which is on the upper West side of Manhattan. Um, to be perfectly honest, it probably was a little bit of a, a, you know, a lucky break and a stretch to be offered that kind of position directly out of residency. Mm. Uh, probably a combination of, you know, that relationship I had built with him and my experience um, from moonlighting. And then also there just happening to be an opening. Um, so after talking through it with him and talking about it with my family, um, decided it would be a really great sort of stretch opportunity um, to try out something a little bit different than what I was used to, which was obviously, you know, just more general psychiatric population. And given my sort of natural interest in that area, um, I thought it would be a great experience to, to give a go at. Yeah. And I think um, that's certainly a common theme is some sort of a fortuitous opportunity, but then taking, you know, discussing with friends and family and thinking about it um, for yourself and then deciding despite it being maybe a stretch opportunity. I love, I love you using that terminology um, to go for it anyway and to, to give it a try. Did you, um, so you mentioned that you, you had, you know, the relationship uh, ahead of time and you had done some moonlighting, but had you had any other types of like leadership management experience before this? Uh, to be perfectly honest, no. Um, I had never, um, you know, run any sort of small business by myself. I've never really managed a, you know, decent sized team by myself. 
Um, so it was really going to be my first experience running a clinic, managing a team of 12 people, um, mm -hmm. and getting my toes wet on that side of healthcare. Great. I mean, so then tell us a bit about how it went and kind of some things that you learned. Yeah. So it was a really interesting position. It was about 85%, let's say clinical, um, let's say about 10% teaching. So I supervised third and fourth year residents who wanted to do electives with me in the clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, I also had some med students from Sinai, um, who would come by intermittently. And then I also, um, stayed involved in sort of the residency didactics and taught some of the PGY one and PGY two classes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was about five, 10%. And then five, 10%, um, was actually that operational piece. So managing the clinic, thinking through workflows, you know, managing a team, which was super interesting. And I learned a lot doing that. What I found though, was I actually enjoyed the 10%, um, operational part at least as much, if not more than I enjoyed the 85% clinical part. Um, mm. and that is what really got the wheels turning, um, to think about how am I going to kind of deepen my experience in this non-clinical side of healthcare? Um, because you know, that's something that I had never learned about and I'd never really experienced in med school or residency, right? Um, at least at Ohio State back then, there were never any classes on how you manage a team. Um, how, how do you be an effective leader? Uh, how do you think through strategic um, choice making? How do you think through operational challenges and try to design programs to overcome them? Um, but I found myself really enjoying like that type of sort of creative decision making. And um, that's probably what, you know, got me to apply to business school and ultimately end up coming to Wharton. Um, so I'm very lucky that I, you know, got the opportunity to kind of get an experience in um, that non-clinical side of what being a doctor really means. Yeah. Yeah. And no, it's really interesting hearing about, you know, that, that recognition when you're doing some of those activities and taking on some of those projects and you say to yourself, wow, this is actually really enjoyable. And I, this is something that I, you know, like you said, I enjoy at least as much as doing the clinical portion. And I find that really interesting because as somebody who you, you know, did the combined program. And so by definition as someone who went straight through into yeah. medical school, I think yeah. the, when, so at, at Penn, um, I think Penn attracts um, a lot of people that are interested in management in medicine and sure. people who kind of sure. have this interaction and that's kind of what health X is all about. And I've mm -hmm. definitely found in my experience talking to people that those who come in with those interests are people who either took a year off to do some sort of other type of experience or those who maybe also in undergrad studied some sort of business, either economics or finance or whatever it might be. Yeah. And that the the value of programs like HealthX is that they at least introduce students to the idea that there are other types of activities within the medical field or within medicine in general that, you know, yeah. are not strictly clinical practice. And it's interesting to then see where everybody actually discovers that along their journey and how then that translates into them getting involved with it. I agree. I think it's super important. I mean, had I not sort of gotten that opportunity um, as an attending to see the non-business side of healthcare. Um, I think to me, the business side of healthcare would have been an unknown unknown, like something I would have never even known I was missing out on. Um, and that, you know, ultimately would have 
changed the trajectory of sort of what I decided to do with my career. Yeah. So, so tell us a bit more about, so you, you're obviously, you came to Wharton and you, you kind of explained how that came to be, but what specifically were you hoping to get out of uh, getting business training? Because, you know, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of people, or I'll bet you talked to a bunch of people when deciding what yeah. to do, but I'll bet many argued, well, you can actually probably get just as much learning on the job if you continue to like climb the chain and leadership within, you know, various clinics or departments within the academic medical world. And I think many of the older generations will often say that. And I think that that's very true. So kind of, yeah, yeah take us through that decision and kind of what you were hoping to get out of it. Yeah, for sure. I would say there were a few pieces. So uh, just in terms of, like you said, talking to people, I mean, the vast majority of people who I spoke with didn't really understand why I was even thinking about this. Yeah. Um, I think most people in medicine who are, you know, practicing clinical medicine, you know, like people who are maybe our parents' generation, mm-hmm. um, don't even quite understand like what business school exactly is or what it means, like what you do in business school. Right. Um, so for many people, like the conversation was just like a non-starter to begin with. Um like, why would you give up an attending job, uh, making X amount of money to like, go back to school for two years, essentially? Mm-hmm. Um, but then there were a lot of people who were more understanding. So people who were maybe closer to our age, um, who maybe had gone to medical schools or residency programs or had more leadership type roles where they got exposure to like the you know, non-clinical side of healthcare. And like you said, some people definitely said, you don't need to go to business school to you know, get a leadership position. You can just, you can work your way up sort of the hospital leadership chain um, as a pure clinician. Um, what I saw though in the hospital particularly were two different types of leaders. So there were certainly many clinical leaders who didn't necessarily have a business um, background or formal business training. Right. And I, I definitely saw ways in which they were not effective leaders hmm. um, and weren't efficient leaders. And, you know, we're actually doing things that from a leadership perspective and now looking back on it, we're like completely opposite of what sort of, you know, we've learned the last, I've learned the last year and a half to be sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, how a competent leader should lead. So that was one thing. Then from the other perspective, I also saw people in leadership positions who were um, business folks. So, you know, they were MBAs, let's say, um, who didn't necessarily have any clinical background. And I found those people, to almost, you know, be as ineffective at times because they couldn't get the buy-in they needed from the clinicians that they were trying to manage to change things. It was really hard for them to convince a practicing physician who's been in the clinic for 30 years that they need to change the way that they did business Hmm. because they didn't have the credibility, right? So at the crux of my decision was I saw this opportunity, you know, for someone who has a deep clinical experience and deep clinical expertise, who also has a very strong management and leadership background um, to be a very effective and efficient leader in the healthcare world, whether it's in the hospital or at a healthcare services company. Um, I just saw a need for physicians to be better sort of advocates for ourselves and take it upon ourselves to actually learn you know, what it means to be an effective leader and go out and do it um, as opposed to letting other people sort of fill in those roles. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's an incredible insight to recognize that. And you, like you said, having that clinical experience and meeting many people um, certainly has informed um, that knowledge. And I, it's interesting that 
I think before coming to Wharton and before thinking about like what the future of medicine looks like, or let me rephrase, before coming to Wharton, I very rarely thought about what the future of medicine was going to look like. Yeah. It was just kind yeah. of like what it was in front of you and whatever right. job you had to do. And sure, people, you know, every now and then you'd hear things about like, oh, well, what's the future of radiology looking like? Because that's so in the zeitgeist that like AI is, you know, within yeah. that field. Yeah. And so maybe some people had conversations about, oh my gosh, am I going to be replaced by a robot? But really that was kind of like the extent, I think, to which people really thought about stuff like that. But yeah how much change is on the horizon is now so evident to me and how it's, it's just like, it's inevitable that things are going to have to change into, you know, mm -hmm. either it's value-based care or kind of the, the different roles that we take on with quote unquote mid-level providers will be taking on a lot more because they really ought to, they have the yeah. ability and they probably should. So just a lot of huge trends that I didn't think much about that I think you were able to put your finger on and realize that, okay, those clinicians are going to have to be changing. And so who is going to, make those decisions about what is going to be changing and who's going to be convincing them to do it. Is it going to be, yeah. you know, the quote unquote executive or administrator that, you know, people in medicine tend to talk down about or those who don't really understand what it's like to be a clinician, or is it going to be somebody who kind of straddles both of those worlds? Yeah, I totally agree. And then also throw a quick plug in there. I think, you know, anytime someone's making this sort of like really critical or important sort of decision in their lives, I think it's a, it's at least for me, it's important to not just think about it professionally, but also like personally, what does it mean? Um, so, you know, for me, I was in New York with my then fiance and now wife, and uh, she was actually the one who was always going to be applying to business school. It was always part of her career plan um, as someone who worked in finance and then wanted to kind of get the MBA to make the next jump. Um, and I had already made the decision that I wanted to be a strong supporter for her. And that, you know, I was going to move with her and not do long distance wherever, mm -hmm. you know, she ended up wanting to be for business school and, you know, get a job there and, and be there for her. Um, so it was going to be sort of a natural transition point in my career anyways. Right. And because of that personal decision that I had made, it, it made the decision to apply to business school easier because I was going to be sort of leaving my job um, regardless of, you know, what the next step for me was going to be. Um, so I, I, that was also like a really lucky, um, sort of break for me in that process. Mm -hmm. Also the fact that we ended up applying to similar schools and then, um, I sort of rode her coattails into Wharton. So we ended up, <laughs> you know, kind of couples matching at Wharton for lack exactly. of better terminology, yeah. uh, worked out really, really nicely. Um, but I think it's, it, that was also a big part of it for me was the fact that it made sense, not just professionally, but also from my personal and relationship um, goals as well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's very important to keep in mind. It's something I think that doesn't go uh, spoken all oftentimes, but it is a, a, not only an important decision, but oftentimes one of the, the driving decisions in terms of uh, why people make changes mid-career or whatever it might be. So yeah, thanks for reminding us of that. And I think, yeah, hearing a little bit more about your ultimate decisions to go into the MBA and kind of what you're hoping to get out of it, it certainly then makes perfect sense um, how you ended up interning for and taking um, a future position with Caremore. So yeah. can you tell us kind of quickly about what uh, the company Caremore is and kind of what you are going to be doing with them in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Caremore is a value-based, risk-bearing, primary and specialty care um, delivery company that focuses on high-risk complex populations, primarily Medicare and Medicaid. They have uh, clinics all over the country 
it started in Southern California. So that's where the highest density of clinics and patients is. Um, but we have, you know, markets from Los Angeles to New York and everywhere in between. Um, what I'm going to be doing at Caremore full-time is actually um, working on their and with their behavioral health uh, division and behavioral health leadership um, to sort of be the director of their Southern California market, the Los Angeles Orange County market. And it'll be a dual clinical and business side role, which I'm really excited about. So mm-hmm. I'll be seeing Caremore patients in the Caremore clinics, uh, you know, two, three days a week. And then I'll spend the other two or three days of my week um, managing the team, uh, leading that part of the division in Southern California, and then also working with the behavioral health leadership across the country on sort of the overall BH strategy, thinking through operational issues. Um, So it'll be a really cool fusion and kind of shifting from my last job, which was like 85% clinical and 10% sort of um, strategy and operations to more. 50-50. 50-50. And I see my career continuing to, you know, go down that route of shifting, you know, more towards the strategy and operations and um, probably away from the pure clinical side. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredibly exciting that uh, that's an opportunity. It's, it's certainly on brand for all of the, all of the reasons that you've discussed, all the things that you're most passionate about and all the things you're hoping to get out of being involved in the business community. So congratulations on, on landing that gig. And I, I know that it, it's going to be a good spot for you. And yeah. I, I wonder, um, you know, it's certainly, you know, the MD, MBA as a, as a phenotype is, is becoming more common, but yeah. I'm curious in terms of how, when you were thinking about places to work and kind of what your job would look like, did you have mm-hmm. to fight for getting clinical time or was that something that they were really excited about the idea of you doing kind of both? Yeah, I think for Caremore, they were actually really excited about it. I think part of that is probably a function of my specialty, right? Like psychiatry and particularly addiction psychiatry being a field that is very of the moment, very at the top of everyone's mind, and also quite difficult to recruit people um, right now. So I think that definitely kind of played in my favor. I could imagine maybe in other specialties, it's a little bit harder maybe to get folks to um, right from the onset, think about like the dual clinical and non-clinical role. Um, but yeah, Caramore was extremely accommodating and actually welcomed that sort of dual clinical, non-clinical role. Good. Yeah. I imagine that the, any company that's more of a service, uh, or healthcare services, it would probably make more sense. I just, I only ask because I think in having talked to people who, you know, either leave clinical practice after residency or kind of take on roles in, in more of the corporate world. Um, they often talk about how it's, it's a struggle to maintain if they're able to maintain it all having, you know, some sort of a a clinical life. And oftentimes people would have to do it on a weekend or kind of do like a once a week type of shift as a hospitalist or whatever it might be. And that it was not really part of their job. It was just something that they had to like continue on their own on the side. Yeah, no, I definitely got lucky that it's kind of integrated here. And I, I'm certainly not um, ruling out the idea that, you know, down the line at some point, it may have to end up being like that, where it's an on the side sort of thing and not an official part of my role. But again, I think I'm lucky with psychiatry because, you know, we're a primarily non-procedural specialty. I don't really need to be part of a hospital or even have a big infrastructure to like see patients. All I need, uh, literally all I need is a room and two chairs um, and a notepad and a pen. So, 
um, it makes it easy for me to sort of maintain the clinical side of things. Um, I can definitely appreciate, you know, someone who's a cardiothoracic surgeon, you know, you can't just, um, you know, do a cabbage casually, like once every other month. Um, <laughs> so it, I think thinking about your specialty, especially if, um, you're someone who's thinking about what that split of clinical and non-clinical is going to be. Um, it's actually important. I think it actually informs like how feasible is that going to be in the future? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think, I mean, as you said, psychiatry is probably one of those with uh, the least needs. Like you said, you just need chairs and, and a pad and paper. So yeah. not bad, not bad from a, a cost perspective. Yeah. So yeah, so just to, as we wrap up, um, I'm just curious to hear from you. Obviously, you, there's a lot on the horizon, a, another big move coming up. Um, hopefully, the, the coronavirus pandemic isn't going to be impacting the move and the starting of, of, your, of your position too, too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what are you most looking forward to over the next few years as you're kind of making another major shift? Yeah, I think over the next few years, I'm looking forward to getting to test out a lot of kind of what you know, I've learned in the classroom at Wharton. Um, starting to get a better understanding of different models of care. So up until this point, I've spent my time in really massive academic medical centers like Ohio State and, and the Mount Sinai Health System. So I'm excited to actually get my hands dirty in a very different sort of model of clinical care delivery and see what that's like. Um, and then also, you know, excited to uh, go back to sort of real life. Warden has been amazing. Um, it's been probably, you know, the most fun two years, um, that I've had since, you know, starting college. Um, but it is, it will be nice to kind of get back to a more routine schedule, um, and having kind of a more predictable day to day. So I think, uh, honestly, that's something I'm looking forward to as well. Yeah. And then lastly, any final thoughts or advice that you have for people who are kind of interested in either the psychiatry field or kind of this, this intersection of straddling kind of both worlds of the business world and the, the medical worlds. Yeah. I mean, I would say for people who are interested in psychiatry, um, we need you. I think psychiatry is a field, like I mentioned, that's becoming more and more valued. Um, it's always been undervalued. I think now it's actually achieving like it's true value. Um, so, you know, despite the stigma despite sort of the pay discrepancy that there might be between psychiatry and other specialties, I would say like, if it's what you're passionate about, like, do it. Um, and then for people who are interested in sort of the straddling of business and, and medicine, clinical medicine, uh, I would say in a similar vein, actually, there's going to be lots of people who say like, why, um, and not understand that decision. Um, but I would say do it. I think there's a real need for physicians to, um, also be effective leaders because if we don't do it for ourselves other people are going to come in and make decisions for us um and i think it's really it will be really hard for us as a profession to advance if we're not the ones who take control of that narrative um and the only way that can happen is if we're sort of competent and confident in taking on not just the patient care responsibility but also that leadership responsibility uh, so i see that as a really important uh role for all of us as a uh, community and as, as a profession moving forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you for those great few final pieces of advice. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Really appreciate it, Arpan. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to. I uh, hope that you're staying safe and uh, hope that everyone on the podcast is uh, staying safe and healthy.
Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our generous donors, Dr. Wong, Dr. Slevin, Dr. Anand, and Dr. Wills. For more information about Penn HealthX, check out our website, penhealthx.com. There, you can also find our blog, where we write about the events we host and the lessons we learn from speakers. To get in touch, you can email penhealthx at gmail.com. Keep an eye out for future episodes. See you then.